All right, we are in week two of, man, I, I know you guys, I, a lot of you are enjoying this material. It's so good. If you're in your small groups, I hope you're enjoying it. Um, Courtney came home and uh, she was saying, she came home from teaching, having our small group and saying, man, have you looked at the week three stuff yet? It's unbelievable. I was crying during it. I told that in first service and a lot of folks were going, yeah, it was really unbelievable stuff. So encourage you to stay in your small groups. But here's what I want to talk about today. Uh, I want to talk about this Jesus and how he changed everything and how he changed the concept of God and religion and compassion um, and tore down images that get stuck in our own mind still to this day of who God is, what he wants, and who Jesus is. So you have an image of Jesus in your mind. I know you do. I do too. When somebody mentions the name Jesus, you have a thought about what this Jesus looks like. And I have a pretty good idea of what you think he looks like. Um, mostly because I saw a lot of the same pictures you saw growing up. Um, maybe you saw them, you know, in your grandmother's house or on a stained glass window somewhere or maybe in an art gallery. And if you've seen these pictures of Jesus, they, they kind of fall into one of maybe three genres of pictures, right? So let me show the first picture here. Here we have um, baby sheep Jesus. And uh, if you... This is by far the most prevalent image of Jesus, at least that I've come across. Uh, I don't know why the, that the, the, art, the artists over the millennia believe Jesus had this fascination with sheep. He's constantly holding a sheep. He's constantly pictured with a sheep. Um, I mean, I get it, the whole shepherd thing, but uh, I'm pretty sure it doesn't say anywhere in the scripture that he actually ever held a sheep. But, uh, but we love the sheep picture of Jesus. And I mean, can we be honest? He looks a little less than manly in this picture. Uh, this is a somewhat effeminate caricature of this, this man, Jesus. Um, and w what I think we've done o over time is in our imagery of who Jesus is, we've tamed him a little bit. Let me show you the next one. And so here is another one of Jesus. I'm, I'm also fairly certain, I'm not sure about the whole sheep thing, but I'm fairly certain that that halo wasn't always present when Jesus walked the earth. Um, and so here's Jesus. Here he is again, um, kind and soft and you know, I mean, look at the little girl with her face on his hand and, you know, oh, he's just, just so soft and tender, right? And then uh, here's the picture. This picture was in my grandmother's house. I remember when I was a little boy. Um, it was a different version of that picture, but it was a very, very similar version of that picture. It was in my grandma's house. Anybody know where that picture's from, where, where it's derived from? Revelation, the last book in the Bible, right? The scriptures say that uh, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door to your heart and I knock, right? And so here is this very soft, genteel Jesus knocking very gently, you know, Hello, is anybody there? And so all of these things, I think, kind of conspire to, to give us a, 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 an, an image of Jesus. But if, if, I mean, if we could be honest about the image that sometimes we create about Jesus... Sometimes, you know, I mean, he's not the kind of guy you'd, you'd maybe want to hang out with because he seems, he could seem a little wimpy. You know, like this kind of quiche-eating, mamby-pamby guy. He just loves to hang out with sheep and kids. You know, it's a little weird, right? He's, he doesn't seem too tough. Now, if I was going to ask you to give me 10 adjectives to describe Jesus, right? What, what would you say? Go ahead, give me a couple. What? Loving. Strong. Strong. See, you're lying because I showed you that picture. <laughs> you, that's what you'd say. You'd say gentle, kind, 
compassionate, right? And those things are all true. Every one of those things is true. But can I just, I mean, can we be honest? Guys that are just gentle, kind, loving, and compassionate that just are just really sweet, sweet people hanging out with sheep all day, they don't wind up on Roman crosses. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. And so, while those characteristics of Jesus are all true, this is not as soft a savior as perhaps we have made him out to be. I mean, can we be honest? Jesus sometimes, I'm down, boy, I can't encourage you enough. You could, you could do this tonight. You could go home and read the book of Mark. It will not take you very long. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. You can read it in less than an hour, and you'll get a full dose of Jesus. Um, and you will see that on certain instances, Jesus is less than kind, um, and sometimes less than compassionate. Sometimes his words were curt, and there was a few times where he was just downright angry. Now, um, we're gonna spend a few, if we're going to spend a few weeks looking at who is this man, we have to be fair to the text and the story. Because sometimes Jesus had hard things to say, and sometimes Jesus was not so nice. There's a story that's told in all, all four Gospels. We're going to look at some of these places. You ever... You know, Jesus got angry, right? And he didn't sin in his anger, but he did get angry. And Jesus, the scriptures Jesus said of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen God. So if, if, you, if you've ever wondered what makes God angry, maybe we should look and say, well, what makes Jesus angry? What ticks him off? Let's take a look. There's a dinner party. We're going to look at a couple instances where this happened. There, there's a dinner party. Well, first of all, what's the most famous story of when Jesus got angry? Goes into the temple, right? And he starts flipping over tables um, with, with, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, with the money changers, uh, walking around, screaming at them, how dare you? Ortberg, in his material that you guys are studying, he says that most of us picture Jesus as an HSP person, a highly sensitive person. And he says, highly sensitive people don't throw furnitures around. To another group, Jesus says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? See, I like sheep holding Jesus much better than this Jesus. He's much more attractive. But I, I would, be, I would be, be being less than an honest broker of the gospel if I did not say to you that Jesus sometimes gets angry. So the real question for, for those of us that are, are interested in him, maybe in, in following or maybe just coming towards him, is what made him angry? This dinner party that I was telling you that Jesus showed up at, it was an awkward dinner party. Jesus had a way of making things awkward sometimes. He was invited to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee. You know what, uh, if, you know, if you know the story, Pharisees were like the religious ruling class, the religious elites. They were charged with keeping every ounce of the law. Their righteousness was not, as we just prayed, based on what Christ had done for them. Their righteousness was based on their own righteousness. They really felt as if they were good enough um, that God, in a sense, owed them because of how good they were. And so at this dinner party, uh, at the home of the Pharisees, uh, it says that Jesus was being carefully watched. There's something about when we become religious, we start, we always like attribute agendas to people. And so, so these religious folks around the tea table were kind of keeping, you ever have a religious person keep like one eye open looking at you? And uh, so Jesus is sitting at the dinner table and, you know, they're kind of, there's a raised eyes about this guy. And the scripture says he's being carefully watched. And into this dinner party comes a man with edema, which was this painful, relatively unattractive, dangerous condition in which parts of your body fill with fluid. And he walks into this dinner party. Now, what you should know is that he was likely an uninvited guest 
uh, and mostly because the Pharisees would have perceived him to have been stricken by God, that he, he was less than whole, he had been damaged, he was damaged goods, and so he would not have been able to associate with these high men of God. Now, in that Jewish society, because it was the Sabbath, for them it was Saturday, for us since the resurrection, our Sabbath is on Sunday, but in that Jewish society, no medical treatment, because it was perceived as work, was, uh, was allowed unless somebody's life was in jeopardy. And so Jesus sees this man, he's got this condition. Now Jesus, we had just been gentle, sheep-loving Jesus. You know, just, oh, I, can I, let, let me just hug a child. If he had just been that way, he would have just pretended not to notice the man because he would have realized this is going to cause trouble. A, I'm showing everybody that he's here, he probably shouldn't be here. And B, if I do heal him, they're going to get all upset. But Jesus was not affable. And instead, he calls everybody's attention to this man because he is sensitive to his suffering. And he asks a question. He looks around and he, he says to all these religious elite, these men that loved God and loved his law, they said to him, let me ask you a question. Is it permissible for me to heal this man on the Sabbath? And you know what everybody said? Nothing. They didn't know what to say. And so Jesus touches the man and heals him. And what you're going to see, is this, is a, this story happens over and over again, and it's so common, and it happens to us. We do it all the time. People that love God, we mess this up all the time. And so into this awkward moment, after Jesus heals him, these diners, they're not very happy about what Jesus has done. He has broken the Sabbath law. Jesus asks them a question. He goes, look, if one of you had a child or an ox that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you immediately pull it out? And do you know, what the, you know how they answer that question? They don't say anything again. They're just looking at him. It's uncomfortably silent. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't appreciate the law of God. It, it wasn't that Judaism wasn't a re religion that had law. It wasn't that Jesus came to start a new religion called Christianity. In fact, the scriptures say that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, that he came to fill it. Right? But it was that Jesus, who was thoroughly Jewish, Jesus, who was a rabbi, Jesus, who, because he was a rabbi, not only knew the Torah, but loved the Torah, there was something else bigger and more important going on there, and it was this. The issue, the question that Jesus was asking to, the, to, to all of these religious elite, these people who loved God, was this. What is the worth of a human being? What's the worth of a human being? Jesus insists that all of this law points not towards the law itself, but it points towards love, and that love was meant, uh, pointed towards love, and love meant seeing and valuing the worth God had placed in all human life, even if it didn't look good, even if it seemed to go against some of the, the religious laws, the cultural norms. Now, Jesus talks about the worth of human life a lot. is a big deal with Jesus. You know the quotes, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit, won't you take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Another one, look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or stow away in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? Jesus says, are not sparrows sold two for a penny, yet none of them fall to the ground outside of your Father's care. But even the, hair on, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Don't be afraid, Jesus says, you're worth more than the sparrows. 
Known and loved by God. See, we're really good at embracing that for ourselves, but sometimes we struggle with applying that to others that are different. Now, follow me here. This is very important. Here's what Jesus was saying to this crowd. He was saying, God's people matter to God. God's people matter to God more than anything else. Jesus, in effect, is saying at this dinner party, does anybody here have the moral clarity and the spiritual courage to speak up on behalf of this disabled child of God? And nobody does. And this makes Jesus angry. Now, for a Pharisee, look, they didn't hang around with the poor, but maybe inviting the poor would have made some sense. It might have been possible. But inviting the crippled or the lame or the blind, that was another matter. Because the, the scripture, the Torah, the law, taught them that anything malformed or defective, they considered it to be, they were considered by the Pharisees to be unable to reflect the perfect holiness of God. And therefore, nothing malformed was allowed within the precincts of the temple. So if you had an issue, you weren't allowed to come close to God. You with me on this? And the Pharisees, they took great pride in making their homes, taking the regulations of the temple, which they had believed had been corrupted by the Roman government. So they started seeing their homes as like mini temples. And everything that was true in the temple, they started making true in their home. And so for Jesus to tell this prominent Pharisee to deliberately invite malformed, defective human beings into his holy little temple, well, that was a deliberate slap in the face. Jesus was saying to him, I want you to put on your guest list people who offend you. Church, are you hearing me? I want you to put on your invite list people who offend you. And Jesus' crankiness and his compassion, they come from the same place. His crankiness and his compassion come from the same source. His outrageous love for every individual and his pain when anybody made in the image of God is undervalued or marginalized. If you've, if you've been working through the material, there's a quote by Nicholas Wolstersdorf. Quote, Jesus' understanding of who are the downtrodden has been expanded well beyond the Old Testament understanding to include not just the victims of social structures and practices, people like widows and orphans and aliens and the poor and the imprisoned, but also those excluded from full participation in society because they're defective, malformed, or seen as religiously inferior. How about that? The coming of God's just reign requires that they be lifted up too. So Jesus is confronting what the book discusses as the difference between what's referred to as the dignity gap. You can look this up because it still exists today. You go to India, you'll see this in the, in the caste system in India. The dignity gap and another concept called bestowed worth. And Jesus enters this fray in the ancient world. Now in Israel, Israel had something going on that was not common to every other culture. Israel worshipped a unique God. They had a unique understanding of who God was, different than every other people. For every other people that had lived in the ancient world, there was not one God. That's why um, there's something called the Shema in, in um, Judaism. Um, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. It's the most holy word. It's the most holy verse in all of Judaism. In fact, it's supposed to be the dying words of every good Jew because it was so unique. There's one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Shema. 
And so Israel understood this. All the other cultures had lots of gods, and none of those gods were seen as caring or loving or personally noble. Those gods were just angry. They ordered life like in a heretical way. In a, excuse me, in a hierarchical, hierarchical way. I can never say hierarchical. There were gods at the top of the food chain, and then there was the king who was perceived by the culture as divine himself and made in the image of God. And then there was a couple of classes of kind of lower-ranking men. And then there was the vast majority of people, the great unwashed, the peasants, who had little value to anyone in society. And so in every culture other than Israel, it was the king who was perceived to be made in the image of God, and everybody else didn't really matter. And so this difference between the king and the ruling class and the people, this, this gap, if you will, was and still is referred to as this dignity gap. And Jesus comes on the scene and he challenges this with an idea never understood before, an explosive idea. Jesus says this, he says, you need to understand something. Despite what you've been taught, despite how you've misunderstood what God is up to in the world, here is the deal. Everyone, everyone, Formed correctly, formed imperfectly. Man, woman, slave, free. Black, white, Jew, Gentile. Every single one of them, no matter what they look like to you, is made in the image of God. Every one of them. Every one of them, therefore, has bestowed worth. Every one of them has equal worth because they're made in the image of God and God has equally chosen to shed his love on them. And Jesus goes about living this out in a way never seen before. Now, I'm going to show you something that gives you some perspective on this. This, this is Ragsy. Ragsy is approximately 23 years old. Um, as you can tell, Ragsy has had many radical surgeries over these uh, last couple of decades. Ragsy, you wouldn't want to smell them. Ragsy um, was given to my daughter Courtney when she was a little girl by uh, uh, someone in our family. And you know how kids, there's something that they pick, that that's the thing? Well, Ragsy was it. And so Ragsy, to this day, I, uh, I called Joan this morning. I said, hey, I need you to go in and get Ragsy off Courtney's bed. Um, Ragsy maintains this place of honor in our house. Uh, I remember one time we went to the mall when Courtney was little, and we're driving home. We got almost home, and Courtney starts crying. So what's the matter? She goes, I left Ragsy at the mall. And uh, so I dropped them off. I swear, this is a true story. I had to get back in the car, drive back to the mall, which is about, about a 20-minute trip from our house, and search the mall. Well, looking, like call, calling a stuffed animal, Ragsy! Um, and I, found, I don't remember where I found him, but I found him somewhere in the mall. And so, what would you give me for Ragsy? A lot. <laughs> you, she just made my point, Courtney goes, a lot. Um, because Ragsy, to you, might look malformed. To you, you might look and go, this is not worth much. But to Courtney, she has bestowed worth to this. She loves this. And because I love Courtney, somehow I am in love at some level or another with Ragsy also. Ragsy will be available after church for petting uh, up in the front. Here's what we need to understand when we're trying to understand who this man is, okay? 
because he's so different than he's been made out to be. If you want to know what makes kind, compassionate, children-hugging, sheep-petting Jesus angry, and if you want to know what makes him say, say mean things to people, it's when we do this, when we violate the principle of bestowed worth that God says... I, every one of these people is made in my image and I love them. They have value because they're my sons and daughter. If you want to make God mad, violate the promise, by, violate the premise, premise of bestowed worth. And if you want to make Jesus even madder, do it in his name. And we do that a lot. See, Jesus, this story is so common. I don't know why we don't talk about it more. I mean, maybe because it, 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 grace is always offensive when you see it displayed on somebody other than yourself. But uh, Mark tells us of another story. It's a very similar story. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. There was another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and right? And here's in the synagogue. And so who wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue? Anybody that had any kind of bodily issue, any kind of, you know, any kind of deformity, anything going on there. And so in the synagogue, there was a man with a shriveled hand who was there. Uh, he probably should, shouldn't have been there. His hand, I don't know if it was from birth, but something had happened to it. It was atrophied. It, it was likely something that had become his identity in his culture. He was likely embarrassed by it. He had probably been told, you're not, God is not interested in you. Clearly, you've been stricken by God. You need, to, you, need to, you, need to, you need to see God from a distance. You're not allowed into the temple of God. And so the scriptures say that some of them, now, who, who's them? We'll see that in a minute. But here, here's the same old story, right? Oh, we're going to raise an eyebrow and see what this guy is going to do. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. Does this sound familiar? So they watched him closely to see, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And here you have this hurting person, a person that has been kept far from God, ostracized by, by a religion that didn't understand. And he is about to run into what people who are far from God still run into so often today, a religious system oftentimes set up with the name of Jesus on it, which attempts to prioritize God over what God prioritizes. One writer put it this way, it is a form of religion which values God over and above what God values. It is impossible to do that, but we fall into the trap all the time. And so Jesus says to the man in verse 3, with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, could you imagine? You're not supposed to be there. You probably maybe just kind of sheepishly showed Jesus your hand. You'd kind of heard he's a healer. You were thinking that maybe afterwards he'd come up to you right outside in the foyer and, you know, and may maybe he'd heal you then. But Jesus says right in front of everybody, because again, this is not the quiche eating Jesus that we're familiar with. Jesus says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then in verse 4, it says, he turns to the them in the story, the them that were trying to be more devoted to God than the people that God was devoted to. Are you with me on this? And Jesus says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? 
right? They had this law that was, you could not work on the Sabbath. You could not work on the Sabbath. This was the law of God. This is what God said. We got to keep the Sabbath holy. You're not allowed to do any work. And all this stuff had built up around it. You know, all these things that you couldn't do. We've talked about it in here before. You could still go to Morristown Memorial Hospital. There's Sabbath elevators, right, where you can get on. And on the Sabbath, on Saturdays, those elevators stop at every floor because it would be work to push the button, right? And so this still goes on today. Right? These religious systems trying to honor God above the things that God honors. And so, so Jesus says to them, what's, what's lawful? To do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Could I, could I do good or evil to, could, to save a life or kill? And do you know what same answer these guys give? None. Because they don't know how to answer that question. Now it's an easy question. If I went upstairs in children's ministry right now and said, hey, kids, is it good to do, is, on, 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 on Sundays, would it be better to do good or evil? Is it okay to do good on Sunday? They could answer that question, right? But these guys at the table, they understand if they answer that question, it's going to start to tear apart everything that they've invested themselves in, a religious system where they have, some, they have some holiness in it, they're in control of it, they've been holding people kind of oppressed to it. What's so fascinating is if you read the book of, of Mark, and you could do that tonight, just in 45 minutes, and I'm telling you, Jesus will blow your mind. Mark, just one chapter earlier, in chapter two, he just had a run-in with these guys. You'd think they would have noticed, you'd think they would have learned, but they don't. Come back with me one chapter, Mark chapter two, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, here he goes again, why does he push their buttons? One Sabbath, Jesus is going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus has been out with these guys. They're hungry. And so they start eating. They start picking some heads of grain, which would have been perceived as work on the Sabbath to feed themselves. Jesus answers. He goes, he points them back to an Old Testament story that they would have been familiar with. He goes, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and they were in need in the days of Abithar, the high priest, it says, he entered the house of God and he ate consecrated bread, which was only lawful for priests to eat. And then he gave it to his companions. The high priest used to put out 12 loaves of bread, each one representing the, tri the tribes of Israel, and the only person who was allowed to touch it once a year was the high priest. And David goes in and starts eating the bread. And so Jesus said to him, listen, you need to understand something. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the son of man, talking about himself, is Lord even over the Sabbath. And so the real question, the real issue, the question behind the question is this. Is the law of God, church, now listen to me, because this, this is going to help you understand God. Is the law of God for the benefit of God or for the benefit of those God loves? And so Jesus says, Let, think about this, okay? He goes, did God create the Sabbath for himself and then say, you know what? I created the Sabbath so that nobody would work. I guess what I'll do is create some people to make sure they don't work. Right? It makes no sense. God did not, it did not work that way, right? In fact, Jesus actually told them that right there. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
God didn't create people just so somebody would keep the law. Everybody knew the answer to the question Jesus was asking them. Was it okay to do good on Sunday? Was it okay to save a life on Sunday? They knew the answer, but if they answered correctly, then Jesus would win, so they remain silent. And so what happens in a sense is that good meaning religious folks have allowed their application of the scripture to conflict with the intentions of the writer of the scripture. Have you ever seen that done? They have allowed the application of the scripture to conflict with the intentions of the writer of the scripture and they remain silent in the face of great injustice. Hello? Okay, so here's how the story goes on. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus looks around at them in anger. The scriptures in, in the original Greek, that word is like wrath. Like, he's really ticked off. And he's deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He knows that they know what the answer is. But if they answer it, it might mean the closing of the dignity gap. It might mean bestowing worth on people that they didn't want to bestow worth on. It might mean the collapse of a religious system that was keeping people far from God. And so Jesus, just to tick them off again, says, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. See, we do this all the time. I had good meaning people one time years ago, you know, a bunch of years ago, we, we started selling some um, donuts and some muffins, so people came to church, and you know, I mean, I know it's crazy, you're trying to get the kids, all the rest, and so we don't have the money to feed everybody every week, that would be too expensive, but we said, we'll put some donuts out there and some muffins, and if anybody wants to buy them, we'll just kind of sell them at cost, and this way people can, and I had somebody come up to me and said, oh, oh, you remember that story about Jesus in the temple, the money changers? You're changing money in the, hand, in the foyer. Jesus is going to be angry. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Like, the, the reason Jesus started turning over the tables in the temple was not because money was changing hands. That, that's kind of the, our simple way of dumbing this story down. The reason Jesus got so upset was there were people that were kept far from God and were allowed to come into the temple, but were only allowed to come into the temple. They had to come, in fact, annually to present a sacrifice. And so what happened is the religious elite started putting up walls and barriers saying, well, you know what, you can't buy, you can't bring your own, um, your own animal to sacrifice. You need to buy ours. And if you buy ours, it, by the way, we charge you three times as much as they charge you outside. It's like the concert t-shirt. You, know, you can get the concert t-shirt out in the parking lot for five bucks. You go in, it's 40. The temple system was the same way. Well, I know that I'm required to bring a sacrifice into the temple to be made right with God. And, these, and so the religious system built up around it and said, yes, but you can't bring your own. You have to come in here and we're going to charge you quite a bit more for it. You want to tick Jesus off? Start building up walls between him and the people that he came to save. You with me on this? Now you would think, Jesus heals this guy's hand right in front of everybody. I mean, if, I, if, if the Lord gave me the power to heal people, right, and I was up here healing people left and right, you, you would probably, two things would be going on. You'd be going, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable what the Lord is up to right now. You'd, you'd, be, you'd be celebrating, you'd be clapping, you'd be whooping it up a little bit. And you also might be a little afraid, right? The, the display of the power of God. But look what happens. This is what happens. Mark 3, chapter, verse 6. 
The Pharisees went out and they applauded. The Pharisees went out and told everybody about the good news. The Pharisees went out and began to plot how they might kill Jesus. Do you see what religion does? Even when you slap Jesus' name on it. And now you understand why quiche lovers rarely get crucified and Jesus wound up on a cross because he radically claims value and bestows worth on everyone. Jesus' version of religion, it can be terribly uncomfortable. Terribly uncomfortable. I mean, these guys are just at a dinner party. All of a sudden, what do you got to do that for, Jesus? You're going to make us all uncomfortable here. We had a system in place. Even today, right, all of us have, a, we, we, we put in a place a system, and sometimes it's just the same old pagan system, we just put Jesus' name on it, where we, we create a religion for ourselves, where we try to get forgiveness from God, we want to do what he says, we want to honor him, we want to get forgiven, we want to go to heaven, but we, could, we have no interest in the things he cares about. We want, as one writer said, a faith that makes us accountable for how we treat God, how we do the law, how good of a person we are, but not accountable for how we treat others. Now, this is not Jesus' version of religion. This is a mix of pagan religion into Christianity. Because this is what every other culture at the time believed about God. And it got mixed in with Israel. We, we have to please the gods or there's not going to be any sun. We have to please the gods or there's not going to be any rain. We have to please the gods or something will happen to our kids. And so they bribe, uh, they, they bribe the god since the gods don't care about us. Now, if you grow up in that culture and you believe that the gods don't care about people, you start to not care about people. And that belief crept into Israel and it was what Jesus was confronting and it's what made Jesus so angry. When people use the law of God to marginalize the people of God who were made in his image, the one he loves, the ones he came for, then you are on the wrong side of God. And you are going to make Jesus angry. Jesus did not get angry when he didn't get his way. Jesus got angry when religion got in the way. When it kept him from his mission to reach the people he loved. What kind of religion makes God angry? Religion that honors God but dishonors what God honors. Religion that prioritizes God. Oh God, you're the most important thing in my life. Oh God, I love you so much. Oh God, I come to church on Sunday and I sing my songs. Oh God, I give my money back into the church. God, I love you so much. God, I love you so much. When we prioritize God, but we overlook what it is that God prioritizes, that's when we discover angry Jesus. It doesn't mean he doesn't love. It doesn't mean he doesn't forgive. It doesn't mean that sin is not important. All those things are true. But if you want to know what breaks the heart of God, it's that when people that claim his name and want to honor him, honor him above the things that he honors. Now, I don't know if you've run into that, in the church ever? You know, we, sometimes, sometimes the love of God, but lack of love for the people that God loves, sometimes we fall into that trap. 
The lack of love for people who are far from him. Now, we don't do this because we're jerks. We do it because we're trying to love God. And so sometimes we think we need to protect God and we need to stand up for God. And so in standing up for God, we'll often put others down. We'll keep others away. We can, we can get it confused. Let me show you an example. This is such a good example of this, in, in my humble opinion. Um, Matthew talks about a conversation between Jesus and Peter. Peter loves Jesus, right? And so Peter loves Jesus, and he's walking with Jesus. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and Jesus stops, and he says, guys, i got to tell you something. I, I'm going to need to be going into Jerusalem now. I'm going to suffer many things, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life. If you're Peter and you love this God, you love Jesus, what do you say? Well, here's what he said. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Jesus, may I have a word with you, please? The heck are you talking about, man? Are you out of your mind? You can't, this is not going to happen. In fact, here's what the scriptures say. He says, never, Lord. That'll never happen to you. And so what is Peter? He's not doing anything wrong in a sense. What is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I honor you. Jesus, I prioritize you in my life. Jesus, I will never let this happen to you. I'll never let it happen. He's, no, no, don't. we're not going into Jerusalem. We're going to go a different way. I'll make sure it doesn't happen. And Jesus turns to him. You want to see angry Jesus? Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Yeesh. You feel that? You do not have the concerns of God, even though you love me. Even though I know you're doing this because you love me. You don't have the concerns of God. You just have merely human concerns. Can you love me and not love what I love? I mean, you know, maybe you, you, I haven't stumbled across one of these yet, but you know, sometimes pastors have like groupies. I haven't, I've never had one yet, but I'm, I'm open to it, but you know, maybe, maybe have like the, the, the Pastor John t-shirt available at the coffee bar for $14.95. Um, you have the Pastor John t-shirt, right? And, oh, I love Pastor John. He's done so much for me. He's helped me understand God. And, you know, I, I listen to the podcast and I like everything he puts on Facebook and I, I come to church every Sunday and I write big checks. I hope Pastor John knows it's my check. I don't know what anybody gives, so, um, you know, I apologize. Uh, I, you know, I take notes. I hope he sees me taking notes. I love Pastor John. Now, let me ask you a question. If you drive off of the parking lot and you see my son lying on the side of the road, hungry, and you just drive right by, do you love Pastor John? Or do you merely have human concerns? Jesus just keeps saying to me and to you over and over again at these gatherings, I want you to follow me. And when you do, I need you to have the same mind, of the mind that I have. Who is this man? He wants you, he's saying to you, I want, you to, I want to turn you into an agent of a different kingdom, a different faith. And so what happens in our story? Well, we know the Pharisees get their way. Not only did they plot to kill him, they do kill him. And the, these followers of Jesus, though, spurred on by his resurrection, inspired by knowing he was alive and now with them, they begin to get it. 
And they begin to prioritize what God prioritized over the cultural and religious rules of the day. They remembered what it was that got Jesus so angry, and they stopped mixing pagan religion and beliefs into the movement of Jesus. And when they did, when they did, they began to radically reshape what compassion looked like in his name. Everything changed. Remember that picture? Can you put that picture up of Jesus with the children? Do we have that? Look how, look, I mean, isn't that just beautiful and melancholy? But that's not the story. If you know the story, Jesus should have like, he should have a not happy face on in this picture because he's indignant. Here it is coming out of, coming out of the scripture. Uh, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Get away, get away. Kids, get, get your kids out of here. We used to have a joke, my uncle, when he'd come to visit, my aunt's name was Beverly. And so he'd always be screaming from the other room, Beverly, get these kids out of here. And for 30 years, we remember it. And you can see the disciples, get, will you get these meaningless kids out of here? When Jesus saw this, the scripture says, he was indignant. Because you want to make Jesus mad. Lower the, lower the God image of people and do it in his name. In that day, children were seen as having little to no value other than just as potential workers in a field. Many of you, we talked about it last week. In the ancient world, children were often seen as a burden, especially if they were sick, not, not quite perfectly formed. Maybe they were of the wrong gender. And so to deal with this, it was common in the ancient world for children just to be left through a, to die through a process called exposure. They could just be left out. In fact, up to the eighth day of their birth, it was possible for the head of the household, which was the, the man, uh, because that's the way it worked. And, and the, the man, the father, had the decision to decide who lived and who died. That's how disposable children were in the day. But Jesus comes along and he says to them, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them because the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. To the inconsequential. The kingdom of God belongs to those who don't seem to matter. And as this Jesus movement spreads out of Israel and across Rome, by the late 4th century, a Christian emperor outlaws the entire process, the entire law, uh, rule of exposure from the entire Roman Empire. And people began to change their view of the value of life and the God-given image in little children. They began to bring unwanted, malformed, unhealthy children into monastic communities. And, the, and the first orphanages are started in the name of this Jesus. Jesus viewed women differently. See, women in the religious culture they were in where they were completely devalued. They had so little worth. They were seen merely as possessions. But Jesus says, radical in the day. Jesus says, into this religion and into this culture, do you understand that women were made in the image of God just like men? Just like men. The longest conversation in all of the scripture between Jesus and another person is between Jesus and the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman who, who no good Jew would even talk to, let alone a woman, comes to the well for water and Jesus asks her for a drink. Radical, scandalous. The disciples come back and they are shocked, offended to see their rabbi talking to a woman. And at one point, Jesus lets her know that he knows her story, that she's had five husbands, that she's living with a guy that she's not married to now. 
What you need to know is divorce in that day was rare. Women could never initiate a divorce. You were either put out by your husband or you were, you were a widow. And so Jesus looks and he says, I know your story. I, I know what you've been through. And this man she's living with, it's likely not something of, of, a, of a sexual nature. She's probably been pulled into a concubine and become his possession. Frankly, it was the only way she likely could, could have lived. She could have, she could have provided but Jesus comes along and he sits with her at the well and he has this long, deep theological conversation, longer than any other conversation. He goes, I know who you are. I value you. I understand that you are made in the image of my Father. And I care. Jesus offers this and all other women, this new community, the same high calling available to men to be a follower of the Most High God is now available to women. It was, Jesus, it was women who followed Jesus to the cross when all the men left. It was women that God had to be the first witnesses, even though in the culture they didn't count as witnesses. It was God that chose women to be the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Who is this man? The lame, the malformed, the lepers, the poor, the blind, the children, women, everybody that had been oppressed, everybody that had been marginalized, everybody had been told that there's a dignity gap between you and others and men and, and, and religious people and God. He blows it all up. And if you want to know what makes him angry, when we use religion, especially when we slap his name on it, to keep people from him. Here's the gospel. While we were yet sinners far from God, separated from God by our sin, while we were yet sinners, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the world to die for us, to reconcile us, to restore us into relationship with God. If you want to make angry God angry, get in the way of that story. And sometimes we do, not out of bad motives. Sometimes, like Peter, we feel the need to protect God or church or our religion. But that's not our call. God doesn't need us to protect him. God's not standing up there and going, boy, I hope you stand up for me. Because, you know, if, I don't, if John doesn't stand up for me, what's going to happen? That's not our call. We're called to knock down the walls that keep people from God and to become agents of this man. Let me conclude by sharing the end of that first dinner party story. Remember, they're all angry. And Jesus is trying to help them understand what he's doing. What are you doing, Jesus? You're healing that guy in here? That guy shouldn't even been in this dinner party. So he's trying to help them understand what God is up to. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 14. Jesus said to the host of the party, look, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they're going to invite you back and you're going to be repaid. When you give a banquet, so radical, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, then you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so, Ben, come up. If you find yourself here this morning, I think there's two camps of us that are in the room this morning. If you find yourself here this morning and perhaps you have been, you have, you have been hurt by the church, by good-meaning people, that we're just trying to defend God or we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to value God but mistakenly began to value God above the things that God valued... Maybe your, your family ran into a church conflict one time. Your parents were hurt. Maybe you were treated poorly. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're just thinking about the things of Jesus and, 
And maybe you've heard about our reputation on the streets. And look, sometimes our reputation on the street is not fair, right? Like, I get that. But, you know, sometimes, we, you know, there have been a few of, his, a few of followers of this man that well-meaning or well-intentioned as they were, they got on TV or they formed picket lines and they fell into the trap of prioritizing the things of God over the things that God loves. If that's you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We do this sometimes. In our zeal for Jesus and our love for Jesus, sometimes we forget to love the things that he loves. And if you're like me, if you're someone who does love him and wants to follow him, if you're like me and you just want to bring a smile to the face of our king, in your zeal for Jesus, please don't make the mistake of loving Jesus but not loving the things that Jesus loved. Here's why. Because there's a dinner party getting ready to get started. And you hold a big old stack of invitations. And the question at the end of the day is, who are you going to invite? Who are you going to invite? I'll just, I'll close with this. I, when we were trying to reach people far from God one time, some friends and I, we used to go down to the mission and we're like, well, what would be even more radical for, for people in the name of Christ to do? Like, where else could we go? And some of you know there's a, a home in Morristown called the Eric Johnson House. Does anybody know that place? It's a, it's a place for, um, for uh, men. I think it's just men. They have 10 beds for um, HIV-infected um, uh, homosexual men. I, th I think you have to be homosexual to be there. I'm not sure. Um, and so we just went and started serving there. And like we'd go and prepare dinner and we'd go and play games at night. And um, one day on Memorial Day or Labor Day, I don't remember which, we threw a big party. We rented a big barbecue and put a sound system out there. And uh, I remember one of the guys coming up to me and going, where are you from? And I said, we're from, you know, Menham Hills, this church down the street. And he goes, why are you doing this? I said, because the one we follow loves you. And he didn't know what to do with that. You've been given a big old stack of invitations. Don't prioritize. Don't prioritize your love of God above the things and the people that God loves. Invite people into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, for those of us who've bumped up against good meaning, good, good will people who have sometimes felt the need to wag a finger. Um, maybe you haven't looked at the log in our own eye before we started picking out the splinter and others. Father, for those that have been hurt by the church and our zeal for and our love for, for you, Father, I pray the Holy Spirit would bind a wound. And Lord, for those of us out of, out of our desire, most, mostly God good, mostly God a desire to love you and honor you. Sometimes, if we're honest, maybe because we just want to be right or win, but would you help us, Lord, to understand that we can't truly love God unless we begin to truly love the things that God truly loves. Do a work in our heart. Let it be so in this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and close the song.